This is your host, Grant Vermeer, Naval Academy Class of 2017, and I'm your Academy Insider. It's my goal to be your guide through the Naval Academy experience by sharing my stories and providing you inside information into the life of a midshipman. Academy Insider is in no way officially affiliated with the United States Naval Academy. All of the content on Academy Insider is my own and does not reflect the views of the United States Naval Academy, the United States Navy, nor the Department of Defense. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Academy Insider Podcast. Today I'm joined by Teresa Meadows, who's a class of 16 graduate from the United States Naval Academy and currently serves as a surface warfare officer. In this episode, we talk about how she ended up as a surface warfare officer, as well as what are the next steps for surface warfare officers after graduation. So we cover topics such as BDOC, the basic division officer course, as well as checking into a ship, integrating with the division, and basically just understanding the life of a junior officer on board a ship. I think this is going to be a tremendously entertaining episode for all of you, and I think you'll learn a lot about what life is actually like for SWOs once they check onto a ship. So be sure to check this out. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, hey, thanks to you so much for being a part of the Academy Insider Podcast. Really appreciate it. Before we uh, get started and talking about kind of the life of a surface warfare officer, if you don't mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself. So a little bit about you at the Academy, so your company, your major, and then a little bit of background about you as a midshipman, uh, but then also where you're from and what brought you to the Naval Academy. All right. So, hi, I do go by T. Um, I was a graduate of the class of 2016, and I was in 28th company, and I actually ended up majoring in history. I never was really on a sports team. I just always participated in intramurals, mm-hmm. but me and my roommate got into training for marathons, so that was kind of something that we we started doing, and we uh, did a few of those. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and then uh, so I'm from Long Beach, Mississippi. It's a pretty small town on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. I would say primarily my call to service and what brought me to the academy was the military was always just a part of our family. So my older brothers were enlisted. My dad is actually still actively serving oh, wow. as an officer five. And so it was just kind of something I always knew from a really young age that I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to get an education and still do the military thing. So I kind of was immediately drawn towards the academy when you get both the military and the college in one whole package deal. So yeah, it's just from a really early age, I just kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. Oh, awesome. And then when you uh, when you came to the academy, so for everyone who doesn't know, uh, you are a surface warfare officer. Did you always know that you wanted to be a SWO, or what kind of influenced you to choose surface warfare as a service selection? So my, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit unconventional. I actually never thought that I was going to be a SWO. So my <laughs> whole time at the academy, never really paid attention to the SWO stuff, never thought I was going to be a SWO, never wanted to be a SWO. <laughs> But I actually ended up being medically disqualified from pretty much all of the other communities. And so like a week prior to service selection, I got told SWO was my only option. And so I basically took my only option. And at the time, I really didn't really didn't know the amazing things that would come of it. But yeah, um, yeah it was never really something I had my eyes set on. And it's just what ended up happening. And it's been it's been really great. Interesting. So what did you want to service select then before all that happened? Kind of what, what were you most interested in? So I think 
I was all over the place, but I think <laughs> the one that held my attention for a minute was being a helo pilot, but then uh-huh. my measurements were too short for things. Yeah, and then yeah. I was pretty dead set on supply, but then I went from restricted line back to line. So yeah, I was really all over the place. I don't really think I ever had like a solidified thing of what I truly wanted to do. I was mm-hmm. trying to figure it all out, but I'm kind of glad they they forced me to pick something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so for everyone who is listening, when she said, yeah, like my measurements were all weird. So that's like a thing that we'll talk about later when we talk with pilots about kind of the pre-commissioning stuff. But they very legitimately take really weird measurements, like the distance between like your knee and your hip and like your hip and your like length of your torso for a bunch of different reasons about like fitting into cockpits and different things like that. But there are a lot of weird measurements that go into determining whether or not you are actually eligible to commission as a pilot. So that's really interesting that you kind of had to experience that. Um, (laughs) But uh, so once you once you found out that you really had to be a swell, honestly, at that point, it really was like, well, you have to be a swell. Mm -hmm. Were there any mentors that you found, whether they were either senior enlisted or officers that made you think that, hey, maybe swell is going to be okay? Yeah, for sure. I mean, once you kind of get, you know, selected for the service you're going to do, you get all kinds of mentors kind of thrown at you, voluntary or whatever. And yeah, I mean, my company SEL was an FC. So he was on ships and he was able to really, really talk to me about like what it was going to be like to keep my head up type thing. And it definitely was very positive reinforcement. And then also going through practicum and some of the other, the other things you get introduced to as what you'll be expecting as a swell. Yeah. I think that, and then also being around some of your classmates that are going to go do the same thing. That in itself, it was kind of like peer mentorship too, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, there were, there were a number of individuals who were swells who definitely helped bring light to the situation and make it seem a lot, well, let it be known that it would be more exciting <laughs> than what I thought it might be when I first got told that's what I would do. Yeah. Absolutely. And so one of the first things that happens, well, not first thing, but once you find out that you're going to be a swell, there's ship selection night. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about how your ship selection night went for you, like what kind of ship you wanted, where did you want to go? Like what were all the factors that you were considering when you were deciding whether or not or, or which ship to pick? Oh my gosh. Ship selection was one of the most stressful nights of my life. I'm not even kidding. So I was in the top half of the class. So there was roughly, I think, around 100 people picking before me. And I knew for a fact that I wanted to be stationed in Hawaii for my first tour more than anything. But but the ships available in Pearl Harbor were very few in number. So you still have 100 people picking ahead of you. And it's just so nerve wracking because you literally have no idea what everyone in front of you is going to pick. And you have no idea why they're picking the, the ship that they're picking, whether it's based on the location or the class of ship or people that they'll be near or whatever. So it, I mean, every pick is a pure toss up, but I knew that I wanted Hawaii and the only thing out in, out in Hawaii are small boys. So just, um, destroyers and one mm-hmm. cruiser. And I ended up getting what I wanted and that was a cruiser out of Hawaii. And so it, it all worked out, but it was definitely, oh my gosh, it was so extremely stressful <laughs> and just, it's like a slow motion type thing. Cause one by one, everyone goes up to pick and you just don't know if they're going to pick what you wanted and it's yeah. going to be gone. Yeah. So, but yeah, I was really happy, really, really happy that I got Hawaii and the ship platform too. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so during your first year at the Academy, basically 
for everyone listening, you go through a thing called practicum. So once you find out what your service selection is, that second semester of your senior year, you have a practicum class where they kind of talk about what to expect when you get to your place for your respective community. If you don't mind telling the people a little bit, what did you guys cover in your first year slow practicum course? What were some of the things that they try and teach the midshipmen before you graduate and get sent out to a ship? Yeah, so we covered a lot of the basics in practicum from what I remember. I'll be honest, I don't really remember that much, <laughs> yeah. but I do remember that it wasn't anything crazy in depth, but it definitely allowed for like realistic expectations and a refresher on material that we learned in seamanship and navigation the previous three years. So it was good insight. I would say the one thing I remember more than anything is a lot of it is very conversational. It's asking your professor or the lieutenant who was is that designator like hey what about this what about that and they give a lot of insight that you you can't always get from a textbook type thing so I remember being very appreciative of that aspect it was a a lot of mentorship and we talked about mentorship earlier I think one of the biggest was the practical lieutenant yeah awesome sweet and so then right after practicum you have graduation you throw your cover in the air did you get basket leave or did you have to report beforehand? No, no, no basket leave. Um, oh, no. Well, I did not get the amount of basket leave everyone else got. Okay. So my ship was, again, a little bit of an unconventional situation. So mm. my ship was getting ready to go on deployment right after I got there. And they didn't want to send me to school in the middle of it. So I was sent to school immediately after commissioning. So I think I had about a week and a half or Mm -hmm. so of basket leave compared to the 30 days. So yeah, right after graduation, I pretty much reported to BDOC in San Diego and then headed out to my ship in Hawaii and basically after commissioning, hit the ground running, didn't really have much downtime before delving into this whole new career. But (laughs) in hindsight, I actually really do appreciate how my timeline has worked out because it's allowed me to stay on track of my pipeline, like pretty much by the textbook. So yeah. Which is, which is not very common. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you mentioned, I uh, used the term BDOC. Do you mind explaining a little bit what BDOC is, how long it is, and uh, kind of what you learned during that course? Yeah, so BDOC stands for Basic Division or Officer Course. And it's, I think it was, it was around an eight-week course. And they offer one in San Diego and one in Norfolk. But it basically goes over, I mean, what it sounds like, base, all the basic information. So it's all the general knowledge for surface warfare that you should know, like going to a ship, like a baseline of knowledge. So it was complete with a bunch of like simulator time, hands-on damage control training, shipboard visits, all that kind of stuff. And they teach you all of that basic information, if you will, that ends up uh, allowing you to have more of a solid foundation when you uh, start a qualification process towards being a surface warfare officer. Okay, sweet. Mm-hmm. And so... You get no time off. You get like a, a week of leave. You head to BDOC yeah. and then you finish BDOC and you fly out to Hawaii. What was yeah. life like for you when you are a brand new JO on a new warship in Hawaii? What was that experience like transitioning, moving to Hawaii, and then like checking in first time on board? So, oh my gosh, it was life was a fire hose. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I flew to Hawaii. I finished BDOC. I flew to Hawaii. And five days later, we were scheduled to deploy for seven months. <laughs> so still really no downtime. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it's just crazy. Everything feels foreign. Mm-hmm. Everything's mm-hmm. new. You know, like from the get go, it's an immediate charge towards your qualification. 
you never know the answer to anything. And it's not a trick. You just don't. And that's, uh, it's a very humbling experience, I will say. So, you know, you're always just like having to look up all these answers to all these questions that you have no idea what even the question really means. But it, it's exhausting, but it's it definitely, you know, truly it builds character. It builds, it's a dose of humility. But it was just, it was just a lot getting into it. But once you're in it, you know, you get into a groove and you figure everything out and you figure out how to talk to people and who to talk to and how to get help from whoever and start working on your calls and yeah. lead the vision. And so what was your first division? What what was your billet for your first tour? So I was the first lieutenant on my ship. Oh, um, decked in. I was. I actually, I loved every moment that I was able to be that division officer. So as a first lieutenant, I dealt mostly with a lot of the topside stuff. So underway, it was mostly like evolutions, whether that was flight deck operations, rib operations, rat like replenishment at seas and all these other things. And then import mostly um, dealt with like preservation of the ship and that sort of thing. But it was a great job. I loved every second of it. Loved working with the bosun mates. Arguably best division officer billet on the ship, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be a little bit biased, but <laughs> I was actually able to keep that pretty much the duration of my whole tour, which, which was nice because I never yeah. really had to get acquainted with a new division or anything. So I did that for pretty much my full two years. Absolutely. And so that that's a difficult thing is, like you're saying, getting acquainted with your division and not having to reestablish relationships with within like a new division. And at the yeah. academy, one, we build great relationships with our SELs just as a result of kind of the nature of that relationship. But mm-hmm. how was it actually trying to establish your first relationship with your division chief and your division LPO at sea? Yeah. How was that experience for you? Well, I think I got really lucky. I know that some might not be as fortunate as others, but I actually had really great relationships with both my chief and my LPO immediately we were always on the same page with things like sure day to day like once in a while you'd have you know your differences and stuff but I think collectively leading the division we are always on the same page our leadership styles are very in tune with one another we're very similar but it just made working with each other very easy so it definitely set a high standard in terms of having really good like a chief to get along with and I was lucky enough like I said to stay in the same division for the majority of my tour and I had the same chief the whole time, too. So oh, we worked nice. together for two years. Yeah, so it definitely, it makes a little bit of a difference, makes the experience a little smoother. But I would say I was, I got really lucky with the, the teamwork that we kind of had within the division for leadership. Absolutely. And do you mind just explaining a little bit at a really high level, kind of what the role of a chief is and a role of an LPO within a, like a division and how you as the division officer interacted and kind of worked with those two individuals? Yeah, so the chief is your deck plate leader for the most part. Like mm-hmm. he will know the ins and outs. He will he will have like all the technical knowledge of basically all of the equipment that you're in charge of and what the what the enlisted are supposed to be doing. So I would say his overall was deck plate management mm-hmm. um, and making sure the technical side of things was like where it was supposed to be and how things were supposed to be getting done. The uh, the LPO, the leading pay officer, was even much more deck plate leadership, like literally on the deck plates, making sure that everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing. It wasn't causing any issues for either myself or the chief. So, yeah, it's it's crazy sometimes. I mean, most of the people in my division were my age, if not 
a year or two different. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you know, you're having to lead 30 people that are your age. And then my chief was like mid thirties or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it, it's definitely funny sometimes when you think about like the situation you're in and the role that you're in. But I always had amazing enlisted sailors who are always so respectful mm-hmm. and chargers and just, I was proud to like be their devo and they made, they made it, they made me look good most of the time because they worked so hard. So yeah, that's super awesome. Cool. Thank you for that. And so you mentioned that when you checked in, you guys were basically about to deploy. So did you do that deployment with them and, and how was that experience deploying? Yes, I did. So I reported to my ship directly after BDOC and five days later we left Hawaii and we deployed for seven months. And so I was actually able to do deployment in fifth fleet, which is the Middle East, sixth fleet, which is Europe theater, and then seventh fleet, which is the Western Pacific. And so, yeah, it was long and it was difficult for sure at times. But again, in hindsight, I'm really happy that I was thrown into it all so quickly because being on deployment, we had a 212 day deployment and 200 days at sea. So we pulled in four times, three days each. But that alone helped me to truly focus on like my qualifications and make the most out of um, my time to see. So I think it it really helped set me up for a successful first tour. Absolutely. And and what are you actually out to see as an unqualified junior officer trying to go through the the service warfare qual? What is what is your daily life like on deployment? On deployment, okay, so varies a little bit depending on what watch you ended up getting put on but standard um you would stand six hours a watch a day so two shifts of three hours each and depending on when that was your day kind of was focused around that so you would have you know time with your division doing the administrative stuff that you do as a division officer you have your meals my ship really pushed like pt time so they would dedicate like two hours a day where you could go do the pt and then the rest of the time, you are running around asking everyone you can possibly talk to to help you with your qualifications. And then at night, typically, you're studying for your next board. So it's very um, it's very much Groundhog Day. I mean, I seven months sounds so long, but it flew by so quickly. And it's the same day it became the same day. Next thing you knew, like, we are coming home. So it's wild how it works. But Yeah, absolutely. And so how was the actual qualification process itself? And then once you got there, was there any feeling that surpassed earning your SWO pin? So, man, the qualification process is, it's really intense. And I will say it's, I think it's only grown a little more intense since I've left my first ship with the collisions that have happened. But it was definitely a constant stressor. A lot of the time, it truly felt never-ending because it was just you finished a qual, but then you had the next one and then the next one. It kind of felt never-ending at times. And some so, you know, some people are a little more difficult with boards than others, so you kind of have to learn the language of the board and that sort of thing too. But I was so ecstatic to finally have it over. It really was just like the biggest weight off your shoulders because you can devote more time to what you actually need to be there doing, which is leading a division. So once once that's out of the way, um, you have you just have a lot more time for yourself and you have a lot more time to devote to other people, which is really good. So, yeah, I was I was really happy to finally have it over. Life just became significantly easier. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so kind of how was the, uh, the shift in your life as well? So you mentioned you had more time for other, other people, more time for yourself as well, but also being back in port. So once you get back from deployment, kind of how does life change when you're in port versus out to sea? Yeah, so I think it's a little more regimented. You only stand watch, you know, every six days is still pretty frequent, but you stand 24-hour duty every six days. So that means you just have to be on the ship 24 hours, and then you'll have watches within that day. But So you get to go home every day, and you get to go home, and you're in Hawaii. So it's not a bad situation. <laughs> but just standard, like, division time, training time. Study. I mean, you can always be studying and learning stuff, so I think that still always kind of falls into daily routine. And then... Yeah. yeah, I think the biggest change is that you just don't have watch every day. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, how long were you on your first ship for? How long was your first tour? I was on it for 23 months. Okay, awesome. And, it, at, and at what point during that time frame do you start looking at what you want to do next and where you want to go next in terms of your next job? And kind of with that process, how did you figure out what you were going to do next? Yes. Okay. So I, I was around 18 months into my tour, had about six months left when I got my slate to figure out, you know, gives me all the options of what is available to me next. And that's not even a guarantee. It's just what could possibly be available. So I, I loved Hawaii so much, but I had also discovered that at the time, I do a second tour as a staff officer. And I talked to a few people who had done that for their second tour, and they highly recommended it. They said, you know, it's, it's unconventional, but you learn X, Y, and Z, but you also miss X, Y, and Z about being on a ship. So it's kind of like personal preference or whatever. I felt really compelled to do staff, but I didn't know if any were going to be available on my slate. And the only reason I would leave Hawaii is if I was able to get Europe, Italy. So <laughs> lo and behold, my slate comes out and there is one billet for a staff officer job in Naples, Italy. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I was like, this is exactly the billet I wanted. I can't believe it's on my thing. Might as well go for it. And so I decided to. And I was lucky enough to get slated the billet. And so I think just having talked to a lot of people who had done that transition from a ship to a staff officer for their second tour was really insightful. They really were able to give me a lot of advice. I knew that eventually I wanted to, I want to shift to another community. And I knew that a staff tour would, would help me kind of get there. And to be honest, I wasn't really sure what the staff tour was going to entail, I just knew I was going to be working around a lot of higher ranking individuals, but it's been so fun. It's been so exciting and I would not, I do not regret any decision about choosing it. Yeah, absolutely. So what job did you pick? So tell a little bit about people, what you're currently billeted for and what your current job is. Yeah. So I got to the commands and I was told I was going to be an action officer, which is, which is basically, you know, the lieutenant's kind of running the six fleet staff. So Caveat, but day before at PCS, I got told that I was getting an order modification and that since our staff was shifting, home port shifting from Naples, Italy 
to Rota, Spain, they were now going to send me directly to Rota with no time in Italy. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to Spain now. But I show up and they, they're like, are you married? I said, no. And they're like, do you have children? No. Like, do you have any pets? I was like, no. And then they said, do you like to travel? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they're like, well, we have the perfect job for you. You're going to be our commands exercise planner. So that's what I'm slated as. That's my current my current job on the staff. It's great. It's amazing exposure. So a little bit on that, I basically, I kind of go around Europe to all the conferences that the ships are going to participate in. So the four ships we have assigned out here participate in all these different exercises within the Europe theater. And so my role is basically to go to these conferences and be the representative for the ships and kind of plan out what their participation in the exercises are, are going to be. So I've, I've gone to travel to so many different places. I've met some of the most amazing people, been able to work with like NATO and all these other organizations that I never thought I would. And like a lot of interaction with a lot of senior ranking officers compared to me. I'm very low on the totem pole of this staff, actually <laughs> the, only, the only JG. But, um, it has been the best experience. So that, that's super cool. Um, yeah, so that's like a really sweet job. But I didn't realize that you were actually slated to go to Naples first and then basically right before got switched to Spain. Yeah. How was that experience of one finding out so late that you were switching? Because that's a real thing, right? Like that's that's a oh, real thing in the military yeah. is you have orders and then and then you have completely different orders the day before you think you're supposed to leave. Yes. How were you able yeah. to like cope with that i mean obviously you're going to spain so it's not like the worst thing in the world but yeah it was okay so it was definitely frustrating because the way that i had kind of been briefed from my command is that i would be able i would be kind of doing roughly a year in italy and then my final year in spain which i'm like wow i landed the coolest orders ever <laughs> but then it got switched um then there was a lot of talk they're like yeah you're most likely going to go to rota first but then it was wasn't nothing was ever official until the day before I literally was flying from Hawaii to go move my life across the world. So um, a little bit of frustration, but I think one thing that I've learned in the military so far has been sometimes you just really can't change like what's going to happen. I mean, you just got to roll with the punches sometimes because it's just things are going to happen the way that they happen and there's not much you can do about it. And come to find out, I actually just incredibly now I'm very happy that I'm in Spain and not Naples because I've done time in both. They send me on trips to Naples and I think I much prefer Rhoda. So cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I've always, and they kind of teach it at the Academy. The leadership thing is like, Hey, only focus on what you can control. Cause there are a lot of external factors that go on mm -hmm. with being in the military. Um, sure. But how, how was that experience now? So, all right, you're going to Spain, that, that's settled. How was the actual experience of moving to Spain and getting everything out to a foreign country and getting settled into life being stationed overseas? It was difficult. I am not going to lie one ounce about that. Um, it was definitely difficult. So one of the biggest things is since I was going to Naples, all my household goods, my vehicle, everything was getting shipped to Naples and they wouldn't reroute any of my stuff until it arrived in Italy and then they would reroute it to Spain. So it was already taking time because it was coming all the way from Hawaii to the other side of the world. But then it took even longer because they weren't able to reroute my stuff once it was shipped. 
So several months before I received anything. So that part was, you know, it's a little frustrating. It was difficult. But for me, I think one of the bigger things is I moved out to Rhoda, not really knowing a single person out here. I knew a few people from school, but a lot of the people I knew were transitioning from their first tour, like me, going on to their second one. So they were leaving Spain. And then also the rest of my staff was in Naples, Italy. So there was only like three of us in Rhoda, um, which was also difficult. And then just the cultural shock a little bit. Mm -hmm was hard because I, I, I can speak a little Spanish, but it's not like I'm fluent in it. And just literally picking up your life, shifting to a foreign country where, you know, everyone is speaking Spanish and X, Y, and Z is way different. And this is in America. It doesn't have this or that or just it was definitely a bit of a culture shock at first. But, you know, as time goes on, it gets easier and you learn the ins and the outs and you seek advice from the people that are here and you learn a lot. So right now it's wonderful. I, I love it. So, but at first it was, it was a little tricky to acclimate to. Absolutely. And so overseas housing does work a little bit differently from if you were to be stationed in what we call CONUS, which is like inside the continental United States. How does housing work overseas? Are you required to live on base or can you live where you want? And how does the money and the funding all work for that? Yeah. So it is a little different. So instead of BAH, it's called OHA, OHA, and there's a set amount for your rank. But unlike BAH, um, you can't really pocket any or save any. So whatever your lease is written for is what is deposited into your account. So for myself, it's 1260 euros. So my lease is written for that, and that's what gets deposited. So nothing additional gets, you know, I I can save or like get roommates and kind of like put a little money to the side or whatever. It's, it's strictly, um, it's strictly that, but you can, you can live wherever you'd like. I'd say for the most part, most families, I think here live on base and base housing. Most of the junior officers, actually, I think, don't quote me on this, but I believe you do have to be married to live on base. So pretty much everyone I know and and my like peer group, all, we all live out in town. Yeah. And how is that? Do you like where you live? Like, how's that experience? I love where I live. <laughs> I, I scored an amazing apartment right on the water. So it's hard not to love. But it is a little tricky sometimes, you know, because like Spanish culture, like siesta is a very real thing here. Like everything <laughs> just shuts down and opens back up at like 8 p.m., which is not traditional time for dinner in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And even here, usually if you're at dinner at 8 p.m., the only other people in the restaurant are Americans. So Spanish do dinner at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. So there's a lot of stuff that's not open at the hours that we would typically need to go somewhere, which is interesting. But then there's, you know, a few establishments that do cater towards Americans also. So kind of find those and gravitate to them. But uh, it's great. I think it it's good because when you're working on base, while it is a Spanish base, everyone speaks English. You're not really having to insert yourself into the culture that much. But I think having to live off base in town allows you to experience more of like living in another country. Absolutely. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's really cool. I mean, sounds like that, that was a bit of a struggle to get everything finally squared away and settled and everything, but how, okay. So obviously the living piece uh, was there, but how was the experience 
different from being PCS to a ship. So like actually being a part of ship's company to being part of a staff. Do you mind just explaining a little bit of the differential in uh, kind of what your day-to-day duties and responsibilities are? Not even necessarily specifically with your billet, but just in general Mm -hmm. of being a part of a staff versus being a part of ship's company. Yeah. So for instance, I I don't have a division anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm very much, uh, it's just me. I have a department head who's an end code, but it's just kind of like, it's just me. So that definitely changes things up because you're not really responsible for anybody but yourself, which is a weird feeling. Yeah. Especially coming from having to take care of 30 or however many (laughs) you have in your division. So it's different. So I would say another big thing is there's a lot of briefs that we have to sit in on just for, um, for knowledge, for exposure, for insight basically just for awareness of what's going on in the theater. So it varies like what your role is on the staff, but I would say for the most part, most of us are sitting in briefs a lot of the day. And then definitely the whole seniority thing is another crazy difference because on the ship, you know, you've got like everything from an E1 to an 06. Whereas on the staff, you're pretty much dealing with like 04s and above. Like, yeah. See way more admirals than you knew existed. You, it's just a whole different world. It yeah. really, really is. And and for me being an O two, it's sometimes I'm just like, ah. <laughs> like so I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just here. <laughs> yeah. So um, it poses some interesting things, but it's just a lot more. I felt like when I was on the ship, my day to day was geared a lot more towards leadership. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like on the staff, my day to day is centered a lot more around current events and what's going on in the world, which is totally different experience. Not saying one is better than the other, but it's just very different and both are very beneficial in different, different yeah. ways. And do you have to stay and watch as a part of the staff and how frequent is that? We do. So we stand a 24 hour watch mm, two or three times a month. Okay. So, so definitely, def- definitely def- left less yeah. duty, definitely <laughs> less duty. Um, yeah. so less what duty you- and no like division. So you definitely, it seems like you definitely have a little bit more time for yourself potentially yeah. and the, the ability to travel, which I do know that you have done. So we're just going to go straight <laughs> into that. How has that experience been being able to live in Spain and having the freedom to kind of do, so you said you travel a lot for work, but you also have the ability to travel a lot just on your own. How's that been? And can you tell us a little bit about some of the journeys that you've been on? Yeah, so I have been here. I will hit being here a year in a week. And I've done 18 countries. Oh, my goodness. And I had not been to any of them before I moved here. I had never been to Europe, had never seen it. And so, yeah, 18 countries. It's a lot. And it's it's been so wonderful. The cool thing about Six Fleet Theater is that the radius is Europe. So if I want to go to Greenland, I can go to Greenland for the weekend. If I want to go to Paris, I can go to Paris. And there's no questions really asked. So that is very, very different from most theaters, most Mm -hmm. commands. Like in Hawaii, we had to submit paperwork just to go to another island. Whereas here, I can go all the way across Europe and no one's going to really question it. So I have done a lot for work, but it also, for personal, I'm like really just wanting to take advantage of the time while I am in Europe. And 
we get granted four day weekends here and there. So I've always made an effort to go somewhere on those. But yeah, I think my favorite, some of my favorite places I've been for personal travel have been Norway, Switzerland, and like Iceland, very Nordic, Nordic mountainous countries. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's so cool. I'm super jealous. And uh, for any of you who are interested in kind of following some of those journeys, so she has an Instagram account that's T underscore by dot the dot C, T by the C. And it kind of follows her as she travels through all these places and has a lot of really cool pictures and stuff. I highly recommend that you look at it like, it's really cool. All the places that you've gone and all that, it's really awesome. And so I highly recommend if you do want to kind of follow those those journeys and just see a little bit about like living in Spain and, and being a junior officer and getting to travel all the different places you can be. It's cool to know because a lot of times people just think like, hey, I'm a SWO. I'm going to go on a ship for two years and I'm going to go on a ship for two years. And then either I'm going to sign a department head or maybe I just like start my transition out of the military. But there are really so many opportunities that are out there, like being a part of a staff in sixth fleet or in seventh fleet or even in fifth fleet that like can let you see the world and give you the opportunity to travel a lot. So one, I think that's super cool Two, I really appreciate that you like post a lot about it because it's fun for us to be jealous of all the cool stuff that you do. (laughs) So yeah, highly recommend that. But now we have kind of one more, one more question. In your opinion, and we're kind of getting back to whether this is on a staff or on a ship, are there any specific challenges that you faced specific to being a female officer on board a warship? So I've heard some great stories about obstacles faced. There's this blog called The Sisterhood of Mother Bee, which is super awesome. They share a ton of stories about being a woman in the fleet. I'm just interested to see if you have or have experienced any specific obstacles or challenge that have been specific to being a female officer in the SWOT community. Yeah. Yes, it definitely, the challenges do exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that each person kind of varies with them. I was on a ship where our wardroom was predominantly men, like very predominantly men. Mm -hmm. There were very few females. And so that was kind of a, an interesting environment to be in on its own. Cause when you're a junior officer, you kind of seek more senior females to be able to to gain things from. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, we didn't have that on my ship. So whether that was turning to chiefs or whatever, it, the, the construct just, it became a little different, but I've talked to other girls who are on ships and their wardrobe is predominantly female. And I'm like, wow, that probably completely changes like the environment that you're in. Yeah. So it is interesting. I, I don't know if I ever can, if I can think of any very specific Challenge, but I will say one since I've been on a staff mm-hmm. has been most of the work I do is with foreign countries, foreign navies, and most of them have even fewer females in their military than we do. So females are very non-existent in a lot of their militaries. So for me to show up, and a lot of the times I'll be the lead planner and I'm a female, I've had a few instances where people didn't necessarily like that which isn't cool. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of, it's a cultural thing too. So it's interesting to kind of see that and go from country to country and like say, hi, you know, I'm the U S representative for this exercise and you kind of get, you know, side eyed, but it's not that bad. I would say I've been fortunate enough to not really have anything crazy go on, but I have definitely heard all kinds of things I have. And like, 
seeing sisterhood of mother be i i also follow that and stuff so yeah yeah well uh Thanks for sharing that. Really do appreciate that. But we're going to start to wrap it up now and finish it off with something that we call a lightning round of questions. Before we jump into that, I just want to clarify, I use the term wardroom twice. So if you're not sure what that means, when we reference a wardroom in terms of actually being the fleet, that means like all of the officers that are at a certain command. So if you are an officer at a command, so whether it's on a ship or on a staff or at a shore command, whatever it is, the wardroom is just the conglomerate of all of the officers that are there. So hopefully that just provides a little context. But thank you. All right. Jumping in to finish off uh, this lightning round of questions. First question. These are all basically going to be in regards to being at the Naval Academy. What is okay. your favorite spot on the yard? Oh, the seawall was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's it. I would sit out there all the time. Like, that's such a good spot. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. All right. Second question. What's your favorite meal at King Hall? Buff chicks. Mm, classic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Strong. Thursday Thursday afternoons. Can't beat them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in regards to signature sheets, what did you make your plebes do to earn your signature? Oh, I made them tell me a fun fact. <laughs> I'm a big uh, random knowledge information person. So, <laughs> like, tell me a fun fact. All right. Who was your... So, you mentioned your FC chief earlier. But who was your biggest officer or senior enlisted mentor during your four years at the academy? Yeah, I had a couple of professors who I had my plea beer and I was able to keep in touch with them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Were they specifically supposed or were they just teachers that you no. got along with really well? Or Yeah, they were just teachers who I really got along with and who seemed very passionate about their military careers mm. and uh, just someone that was very easy to talk to. So, Absolutely. And then what is your favorite book? Oof, my favorite book. That's a tough one. Oh, man. Cool. It's called Silence. Okay. What's it, what's it about? It's, a, it's about this guy who trekked across Antarctica and about kind of like how modern society needs to, to take a little more silence in their life. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then what is your greatest memory from your four years uh, in Annapolis? Oh, man. That's hard. There's so <laughs> many good ones. I would say, you know, okay, so a really good one was, so my company did uh, croquet. We oh, had nice. Did yeah. Croquet. And you we were told that if we didn't win, that croquet was going to be open to the rest of the academy for the team. <laughs> and we weren't having any of that. And so it was the first, I think one of the first times where the team played to win and they won and we were able to keep croquet within 28th company. And that was just a, a, a blast. Like it was a really fun time. Everyone was super stoked. Croquet in general is a good time. So on oh, top of that, it just better. Did you play for the croquet team? I did not. So okay. in my plea year, I was a caddy. And then nice. after that, just I was a strong supporter. Strong supporter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so a lot of the Academy Insider audience is just loved ones of midshipmen trying to learn a little bit more about life at the Academy and after the Academy. But there are also a lot of people who are either candidates or trying to learn more about the Naval Academy in general. So if there is someone listening uh, that is thinking about attending the Naval Academy, what advice or thoughts would you give them in terms of what to consider when determining whether or not the Naval Academy is a good place for them? 
Yeah, so I think the academy could be a good place for anybody. I think it's such a well-rounded institution. People come from all walks of life. And with that being said, I think that's one of the biggest things to kind of keep in mind when you're there is that everyone's pretty successful in a lot of stuff that they do. So to keep, you know, a little humility, but also like glean from, from everyone that's around you because you can learn so much. I would say that pursue the things that you want to pursue and be passionate about the things that you want to be passionate about because everybody brings something different to the table. And I think that's what makes our military such an amazing collective force is that we're all so different because we all bring something different. So it's really easy, I think, when you're at the academy to kind of get sucked in or when you're applying, thinking that you know, all these people are better than you or whatever. But I would just say, you know, like focus on yourself and what you bring to the table, because chances are it's probably something pretty awesome. So, Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on and share all these stories. Yeah, definitely. Uh, appreciate yeah, of course. All right. So everyone out there, I hope you all learned a little bit about surface warfare community and just general slow life from T's experience. Thank you guys so much. I hope you all have a a great day and take care. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. And I hope you learned a little bit about the life of a junior officer in the surface warfare community from Teresa's story. Please leave me a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe to the Academy Insider podcast. If you want to learn a little bit more about the Naval Academy experience, Check out my Facebook page, Academy Insider, or go to my webpage, www.academyinsider.com. Links discussed in the show, specifically the book that T mentioned, will be listed in the show notes. My name is Graham Vermeer, the Academy Insider. Thank you so much for letting me be your guide to the United States Naval Academy.